Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 3 this morning in verses 1 to 2. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Thus far is a reading of God's Word. As Paul begins here now to, to speak more uh, directly to the Galatians about their sin, at first glance to some it may seem that that he comes off a bit harsh, doesn't it? Because he, he says to them, or he addresses them like this, Oh, foolish Galatians! But we need to understand that, that Paul does that. Because this is something very personal to Paul. Right? Paul is, is heavily invested in these saints. Right? Paul understood that God had used him to be an instrument to bring about the new birth of these believers in the churches of Galatia, right through the the proclamation of the word, and now in doing so, Paul feels like a father to these believers. It's in fact that that language that that is used elsewhere about how Paul feels about those whom he has labored over. In First Corinthians chapter four, verse fifteen, he says this: "For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers." For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so we see that as Paul is writing to the saints in the churches of Galatia, he, he sees them as his, his spiritual children of sorts. Now, every one of us here today has at some point in our lives been a child. Some of you still are children, and some of you have children. Uh, but one thing that we know about children is one, that oftentimes children will act childish. And when children act childish, many times they don't do it alone, do they? But they do it with others. They get themselves in, in trouble. Not always by themselves, but in groups. With a bunch of children acting childishly together. And what happens when you are informed about your child acting childishly at, let's say, school? Well, you sit them down and you and you speak to them, and they oftentimes will give you that excuse. Well, I wasn't the only one. Right? Someone else did it. I was only following so and so. But as a parent, right, what do you say to your child? It doesn't matter. You know, although you may be unhappy with those other children, you're far more upset with your own. And why is that? Why are you more upset with your own child? Well, because you say they should have known better. I don't know what those other parents teach their children in their home, but I know what you're taught in this home. And so you know the difference between right and wrong. Right? You know what's expected of you. You know how to, how to act and how you are supposed to behave. And so that's one reason that we get upset with our own children. Uh, also, we get upset with them out of a, a loving affection that we have for them. Uh, you don't want your children to destroy their life through terrible actions. 
right, that's going to maybe hurt them in the future. Uh, you don't want them to do something that's going to ruin their reputation now, but it will, but will stay with them through all of their lives. Uh, you don't want them also to do anything that will bring shame even upon the, the family name. Right? And so this is some of the reasons why we get upset and why we discipline our children and, and correct them, even sometimes harshly. And we need to see that, that it's that Father's love that moves Paul too to write to the saints in these churches this way. In fact, this is uh, what he has expressed in other places as well. Uh, think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Right? He writes to them out of fatherly affection. He says in, in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so it's here with that same fatherly affection that Paul shows the saints in Galatia, right? what it is that they are doing wrong. And he writes here to rebuke them and correct them and exhort them because he's saying, I don't care what everyone else is doing. I don't care what everyone else is saying. You want to know better. You want to know better. Why? Well, because Paul says, I know what you were taught because I did the teaching. Paul says, you ought to know better. You ought to, to do better. Why? Well, because there was a time when I was with you and I preached the word to you that you believed that you were a guilty sinner before God. That you were totally unable to be righteous before God in any way, shape, or form. Right? There was a, a time in which you said you lay, laid hold to, to Christ and the cross and the gospel. And so Paul says, you know the, the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. You know the difference between true justification and, and false justification. So he's grieved. Right? He's writing out of grief because of their, their waywardness. And so he speaks to them like this in verse 1, not to hurt them, because he wants to help them. He wants to help them. Like a, like a father does, though, what do you do to, to help your child who's doing something wrong? You chastise them? You, you get their attention in order that you might correct them and, and bring them back to the truth that they once believed. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, in the first five verses, Paul, like a father, asks them also many questions, doesn't he? Right? There's many questions here being asked, just as we would do with our own children. Why? Well, because you just don't want to give them the answer. You want to kind of draw it out of them, don't you? You want them to see that they, they know what's right. They always knew what was right to do. And what they did was wrong. And so we ask them questions so that they respond to us, so that they have to tell us, so that they can see that, that they themselves know, but they've acted contrary to what they know. They acted contrary to what they believe. And so he starts in verse 1 saying what? Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? With this verse, we're going to look at our first point this morning, which we'll call the, the bewitching of the Galatians. The bewitching of the Galatians. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear that word bewitched being used too often today. You know, it's not a, a word that's, that's common in conversation. Uh, but that word bewitched means to, uh, to fascinate. Right? The word bewitched means to overpower. And so it's as if Paul is saying to them, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has put a spell on you? Right? Who is, has, has so captivated you 
that you are now forsaking the gospel, falling under the spell, and now believing that, that through the Mosaic law and the circumcision of the flesh, you might draw near to God. Right? That's what he's saying. Who, who, who cast a spell over you? And so this is why he calls them then foolish Galatians. Because right? they have left or are in the process of leaving the truth for falsehood. Now, some might decry what Paul says here when he calls them foolish Galatians. And they say, actually, Paul ought to be charged maybe here with a sin in calling them foolish, right? Citing Jesus' words back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. If you remember there, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. But what we need to see here is that what Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount is something different than what Paul is doing. What Jesus here is addressing is is an anger that arises out of impure and sinful motives. Right? Self-seeking purposes that is, that is wrathful toward our brother or sister in Christ. Right? Remember, this comes right on the heels of him saying, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But if you hate your brother. Right? You have committed murder in your heart. And then he goes on to say this. That's the kind of heart disposition he's talking about for the one who would, who would call someone a fool. It's a self-seeking, wrathful heart. But throughout Scripture, people are classified as fools, aren't they? Even by God Himself. Right? He classifies peoples as fools. And so, it's not the, the word fool or, or foolish that is condemned, but, but a manner in usage. But we need to see in our text in this first verse that, that Paul has no malice behind it, does he? But no, Paul speaks the, the truth out of love because he wants to show them they are acting contrary to the truth. But that's how the word fool and foolish is used throughout Scripture. Right? To... to when, you, when someone is called a fool, or the word foolish is used, it oftentimes uh, is saying that someone is acting uh, contrary to Scripture. Right? They, are, they are not living and acting according to the Word of God, but they are living and acting like the world. Right? That's why they are fools. That's why they are foolish. And that's the same way that Paul uses it here in our text, when he calls them foolish Galatians. They're not acting according to the truth. They're not acting according to, to the Word of God and what they know. They are acting like the world. And so they are foolish. And remember who Paul is as well. He's, a, he's an officer in the church. Right? In Titus 1 and Titus 2, what are officers to do? They are to, to preach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. But I, I think this is also, though, why Paul not only calls them foolish, but calls them foolish Galatians. But he calls them foolish. He doesn't call them foolish brothers, does he? He calls them foolish Galatians. Why? Because they were acting according to their sinful nature. Right? They were, they were acting carnally. They were acting according to the world and not to scripture, forsaking Christ. And so he calls them according to the, the province that they were living in, Galatia. Right? They were acting like Galatians. All of those who, who lived in that province, who, who forsook, who forsook God and, and believed the lie. But then we have to ask, well, whose lies have they become, though, bewitched by? Because he says, who has bewitched you? Well, who is the father of all lies? It's the devil. 
And so ultimately, if we, if we want to trace it all back, it's the devil who bewitched them. But that doesn't mean that the devil personally came to the churches in southern Galatia and, and bewitched them himself. Because we know that oftentimes Satan uses what? Right? He uses the world. Right? He uses the things of the world to spread his lies. Uh, and so all of this ungodly world, whether they know it or not, work in conjunction with the devil. Right? They, they, they serve him. They work for him. They are his co-laborers. And the Judaizers demonstrate that fact. They are doing the work of the devil. So it's as if the devil himself was doing it. Right? They are teaching that, that devilish doctrine that, me, that is meant to, to lead saints away from God. Today, the same thing happens, doesn't it? Right? Satan is spreading lies through the world. He does it through the governments of this world. He does it through false religion. He does it through organizations. He does it through individuals. And he gets it across through the, the television screen and the internet that every single person in this world essentially lives on. What is also true, brothers and sisters, that we need to see is that not only will the, will the devil use the, the world to bewitch you and I, he likewise will use ourselves. He will use ourselves. He will use the corruption of our own heart to bewitch us. We've seen him try to do this. Where? Where's a good example of this? How about Matthew chapter 4? He tries to do this with Jesus, doesn't he? He tries to, as Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, promise him all these things. Look out here. All of this will be yours if you just worship me. Now, in his effort to bewitch Jesus, he failed. Right? He found no success. Why? Well, because in Jesus there is no indwelling sin. Right? In Jesus there is, there is no corruption. And so he could not get hold of Jesus. But that's not the same of you and I, is it? It's not the same of you and I at all. Take, take then Judas for an example of the other side. Uh, Judas was a greedy man, wasn't he? And so what does the devil do? He, he plays upon his already covetous heart and entices him to betray Jesus with the promise of money, of riches, of wealth. And that exact same thing happens today. You think about all the ministers in churches, right? Those wolves, really, in sheep's clothing, uh, who preach a doctrine that, that tickles the ears of the congregants, uh, that plays upon their indwelling sin and the lust that is within inside of them, in order that you may amass this huge following, so that the minister himself might be able to put a lot of money in his bank account because of it. Right? We need to see that. And, and you and I are not immune from, from the devil's fiery darts. Right? When you come here, when you leave and you turn your radio on, the devil could be working through that. When you go home and you turn your television on, right, the devil could be working through that. When you listen to maybe preachers on the radio or, or on your computer throughout the week who you like but perhaps aren't all that orthodox, the devil could be working in conjunction of that to, to sway you away from the Lord. But let us also see how these lies, though, come to us. They come to us incognito. They come to us in disguise. Right? Dressed up as something good, yet something bad. Or they can also be something good that is used bad. 
right, are, are used in, a, in an unlawful way. In fact, isn't that what the Judaizers are guilty of? They're calling the Christians to observe the law, which necessarily isn't bad, is it? It's not bad. We, 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 we likewise believe that we ought to observe the, the moral law. But what, what made it bad? What, what did they take that was good and make it bad? Well, they made it bad when they put it alongside the cross and said that it's works plus the cross which equal your salvation. Because why? Well, they nullify, we read last week, the, the grace of Christ. Now, many of us here today may think that we are safe from being bewitched. Right? We might think, well, you know, I'm, I'm too smart uh, to be... Uh, overtaken by the world or have this uh, spell cast over me. I, I know better than my peers. But I want us to listen to uh, what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, lest any of us un- underestimate our enemy. There he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says what? We are under a spiritual attack. It is a spiritual attack that we are dealing with. And as is the case with the saints of the church of Galatia, it's oftentimes in doctrine that that warfare takes place. And it's in doctrine that the warfare takes place. That's where Satan grabs hold of your mind. And so, brothers and sisters, we all must humble ourselves. Right? Not, not believing my, my doctrine's perfect. I know it all. Everything's buttoned up in my doctrine. Right? We must humble ourselves not thinking there's nothing else I need to learn or nothing else that needs to be tweaked or altered even in my practice. I know it all. Right? Nothing will come and, and, and drive me away from Christ because it's those kind of people who think that way who are on the verge of being overthrown. Who are on that pathway. And what is true of the of the Galatians. It's true of every one of us. Right? If we stop and we took the time to examine ourselves, we would see that we just as easily are, are carried away by worldly pleasures and worldly cares. Right? That the devil presents before our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts. Yes, the Galatians are demonstrating in their forsaking Christ, their rebelliousness and their waywardness. But brothers and sisters, that same thing is true of you and I. We likewise are rebellious people. We are stubborn in heart. And so don't deceive yourself by thinking too highly of your own capabilities because hypocrisy reigns in every one of us. And we are the ones who have the Word preached to us every week. We're the ones who, who read the Word or hear the Word every day, and yet we have hypocrisy still reigning in us. Right? Scripture tells us what? How we are to view marriage. How we are to view our spouse. It tells us how we are to view our children. Uh, how we are to view the world. How we are to view those who are over us in society. How we are to view uh, the local church and our relationship to one another and, and the importance of prayer and worship and all these things. And yet ask yourself, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, how often do we act contrary to it? I mean, how much more then does that make us guilty than those who are ignorant of those things? I mean, think about it. 
Yes, the false religions of the world are guilty before God, for they reject the one true living God and His Son. You know, atheists are guilty before God because they deny even God's existence. And yet we know the way of truth. We know the way of salvation. We have heard the voice of Christ. We have felt the power of God. We have the indwelling sin leading us, and yet we still rebel against it. And so can you start to see why Paul is so angry with the saints? And why he is, he is frustrated? Why he speaks to them in the way that he does? And he's speaking to people not who are ignorant of the Gospel, but he is speaking to people who have had the privilege of, of hearing the Gospel and of God granting them that opportunity. And they have received and felt the privileges of it, and yet they are turning away for God. from To what? Right, to something other than Him. And in doing so, right, they are giving up the only way to everlasting life. Right, this is why then Paul is so frustrated and why he goes on to say then in verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And in verse he continues, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This leads us to our second point this morning, which is the reception of the Spirit. The reception of the Spirit. What baffles Paul so much is how they could have experienced what they have experienced and so easily been turned away from the one who granted them that very experience. What ought to have caught all of our attention here when I read that is how Paul describes what their eyes saw. What does he say? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's not saying that all these people stood before the cross when Jesus was physically crucified. He's talking about his preaching. He's talking about his his preaching. Remember how these saints came to faith in Christ. It was through the proclamation of the gospel that Paul declared in his first missionary journey to southern Galatia in Acts 13 and 14. We have one example of that in Acts 13, verse 48. While in Antioch preaching the gospel, we're told, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. It's that same thing that happened in Iconium and in Lystra as Paul is is church planting there in southern Asia Minor. And it's these very saints that he is addressing this letter to now. And so he's not speaking hyperbole either then when he says that Christ was publicly portrayed before them. He's not speaking hyperbole. In fact, this is what that word portrayed means. It means to placard or to advertise. All of us have driven down the road, maybe on the expressway, and we've seen the, you know, the big poles on the side of the road with giant billboards, maybe with an injury attorney advertisement, or a, a restaurant advertisement at a, at a near-off exit. That's what the word portrayed here conveys, the idea of being, being advertised before your eyes. 
The same thing with the word placard. Right? What's a placard? It's a poster, a sign for public display that maybe you would slap up on a wall. And so what's Paul saying? Paul says as the, as the gospel was proclaimed amongst them, he did it so clearly, so effectually, so powerfully, that it was, is, that it was as if he painted a portrait of the crucified Son of God himself for them. That's what he's saying that preaching did. What they received when the gospel was proclaimed to them was equivalent to what those who stood at the foot of the cross saw. Do we see why he's upset? What he's saying is that when the gospel was proclaimed among them, it was as if they witnessed the shed blood of Christ dripping from Calvary's cross. That's what Paul's saying. That's why he's so upset. That's why he's saying, oh foolish Galatians, Right after witnessing this Christ, how could you depart from Him for anything else? That's why he's bewildered by their actions. That's why he says there's no excuse for their rebellion. They aren't some pagan who never heard the Gospel. They heard it. And when they did, it was as if Jesus Christ crucified was plastered on a billboard and advertised for them all to see. That's what he's saying. Now we need to understand that He's not saying that he pulled out a sketch pad and that he actually drew a cross in Jesus for them to see. No, the gospel was enough. Right? The, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That alone is sufficient. But this is why Calvin said this, Let those who want to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright learn not only to speak and declaim, but also to penetrate into consciences so that men may see Christ crucified and that His blood might flow. That's, brothers and sisters, what the true preaching of the Gospel is. That's what the true preaching of the Gospel does. It's a word picture a word picture that God has left to His church. That is what He has left to you. So when the Gospel is preached here each week, it should be as if a picture of the crucified Christ has been painted before your very eyes. Not with anything physical, but merely with words and you behold it. Not with your physical eyes either. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is they saw the crucified Christ through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith. And when you hear it, when you see it with those eyes of faith, God uses it to pierce your heart like a two-edged sword. And with it, He encourages us. And He builds up your faith. He confirms your adoption. He reproves, rebukes, corrects, and grows you in grace. Right? There ought not to be, brothers and sisters, any greater highlight in your week than that. There are a lot of events that go on throughout our month that we say, boy, we need to make time to be here. Whatever i got to cancel in my schedule, I'm going to do it to be there. Because that event is so important. I want us to see this. There's no event that you ought to clear the calendar for more than the preaching of the Gospel 
as we gather together as the saints. Right? But let us see that that's exactly what you miss. Right? When you are not sitting under gospel preaching. And let me say this, is not anything the minister does. The minister is nothing. Simply an instrument God uses to He Himself then work powerfully through the Word in you. And so do we start to, to, to really have a firm grasp of why He is so angry with the saints then today? Right? Do we start to understand that better? Christ crucified is what God enabled these saints to see with the eyes of faith. And now they're running away and forsaking the Gospel after beholding such a lively representation of the Lord. All for what? For the law? For the law. Right? The preaching of Christ crucified and the reception of Christ. Right? That word picture that they saw preached freedom in Jesus. It preached peace with God. It preached forgiveness of sin. Right? Washed away by the blood of Christ. Cleansing. It preached eternal life and the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith. And they're willing to give it all away for the law. For bondage. For their own works of righteousness to be right before God. Which ultimately means uncertainty, but with your standing before God. That's what they were willing to exchange it for. And so how could they be called anything other than foolish? Anything other than fools? Now as we read this though, there are, there are many, many, many lessons we can take from this first verse. But just one is this. Are there Christian images that are necessary for the church? Are there Christian images that are necessary for Christ's church? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. What are they? What does Scripture say they are? The preaching of Christ and the sacraments, which are two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the only things God has left behind to be pictured by in His churches. Now, you might drive around today and you might be able to identify Christian churches by the cross that hangs outside their door, that sits in the front of the yard, that is displayed behind the pulpit. But that piece of wood says nothing about if it's really a Christian church or not. And I think as we drive around today and you see the messages in front of these churches that have crosses and we see the, the flags that are, that are draped around the cross in these churches, we recognize that these aren't Christian churches, many of them, but synagogues of Satan, aren't they? Right? A sign does not make a church a true church. The true gospel declared in the power of God does. In speaking out against Rome with all of their images, the the great Puritan theologian William Perkins said this, Images were not established in churches in the West until after 700 years. As long as the church had golden teachers, there were no wooden images. But when golden teachers did degenerate and become wooden teachers, then came both golden and wooden images. You see, wherever the true gospel is proclaimed, those things aren't necessary. They're not needed. 
The gospel is enough. Uh, one uh, Presbyterian author, any of you might know, Philip Ryken, I believe it was he who said, when Paul preached the cross, he didn't need to have a cross with him. Right? When he preached the cross, he didn't carry around a wooden cross. Why? Because the cross was already upon his lips and his tongue and his words. Right? That's how Christ is made known to us. That's how you receive Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And that's how then you receive Him. It's not in paintings. It's not in figures. It's not in statues that you see Christ. Nor is that ever how He's wanted you to see Him. But rather, it's in the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Gospel. That then we take Him in spiritually with the eyes of faith. That's how He wants you and I to behold Him today. Right, the true picture or portrait that will lead you to Jesus is the Gospel. It's not anything that man can fashion by his hands. And so, brothers and sisters, I say this. If there are any of you who are disappointed that there's not a big wooden cross behind me, don't be. It would probably just distract you. It would distract you from seeing the very thing Christ wants you to see today which is Christ crucified, not through a wooden image, but through the eyes of faith, pictured to you as the gospel is proclaimed. And in doing so, let us then rejoice. Let us rejoice that that God has has enabled us to see Christ crucified publicly portrayed in this way. Because what do we read elsewhere? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, And even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. You and I have a privilege that is not given to everyone, right? Many are called, few are chosen, right? There are many sinners today who do not have access to see the crucified Christ publicly portrayed in the gospel because they are still left destitute in their sin and in their misery. And so let us thank God that He granted to us eyes to see and ears to hear and and in hearts to receive Christ through the preaching of the Gospel, which is the only way He wants us to receive Him. And it's all by His grace. It's all by His grace. Now he goes on to say in verse 2, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, he asks them this question now because he knows they know the answer. Or at least uh, they should if they're true Christians, right? They ought, they ought to know that answer. So he wants them to stop and think by asking them this, right? He wants them to get out from underneath the, the spell they have been cast under and to now start thinking biblically. So he says, how did you receive the Spirit? Two ways. Either by the hearing of faith or by the, the works of the law. Now, one thing I want us to see is this, that we know that the Spirit right, logically precedes faith. Uh, that the Spirit enables us to believe. Right? But what is also true is that you don't um, recognize those things until you believe. Uh, the operations of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you don't receive until you believe. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And so when he asks them, how did you receive Him? The answer they must give, as we all must give, is through Faith in Christ. Right? What does Peter declare in Acts chapter 2, verse 41? Peter declares, um, Repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus this proves what? That the Holy Spirit is not a reward for anything that you and I have done. Anyone who has received the Spirit has only received the Spirit graciously by God. So that the Spirit is not something you can earn or or grab hold of to by your own merits, but He is something that is given to you. Which tells us what? That it is impossible then to lay hold of the Spirit by the law. It's impossible to lay hold of the Spirit by the law. And here is the difference between the law and gospel. Right? The law tells you this is what you must do, but helps you in it what's none whatsoever. It says, do this, but gives you no help to do it. it doesn't even tell you how to do it. The gospel does. Right? The gospel says, do this, and then it provides for us the Holy Spirit. But see then, brothers and sisters, how necessary the preaching of the gospel is, because it's only through the preaching of the gospel that you will ever receive right, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, as Paul was preaching to Cornelius, we're told while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them who had heard. Right? See that, that, that word and spirit work hand in hand together. Right? They work hand in hand. And if the Spirit comes to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, why would we think that the rest of the Christian life is lived any differently than that? By grace alone, through faith alone. Right? In Christ alone. This is the question, actually, that, that we'll begin to look at next week in verse 3. Because Paul's going to ask him, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so as we draw to a close this morning, let that be a question that we, we all ask ourselves today. Let us think about it this week so that we're ready as we return next week. Have I, who have, who have said that I have placed my, my faith and hope and trust in Jesus, and that He has forgiven me my sin, that He has made me right before God, have I now betrayed that confession by trying to perfect my, myself by my works? Right, let us ask ourselves that question. It's also, though, a question, or it's a call for us, rather, to think about and to remember how it was that you and I received Christ to begin with and, and what we received when we received Christ. And what we ought to remind ourselves is that when I received Jesus, I received everything. Everything I needed for salvation. Justification, already yours. Sanctification, yours. Glorification, yours. His life and His death, all yours. Apart from the works of the law. And simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And so you who look to the Lamb of of God slain as your all-sufficient Savior, when you've seen Him publicly portrayed as crucified before your very eyes through the preached Word, I call upon you to continue to look to Him that same way each and every day of your lives. Right? Don't allow the devil to bewitch you. Which means what though? We need to continually go before the Lord and plead for His grace and His strength and His mercy. Right? Don't ever stop looking to the cross and begin looking to yourself. But be satisfied with the perfection of Christ and with His Gospel alone. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh, we thank thank You for its truthfulness and we thank You for Your a faithfulness towards us as you uh, illuminate our, our hearts and our minds, as you help us to, to understand your word. Uh, we likewise ask, Lord, that this week the Holy Spirit would, 
would cause us to continue to think about uh, what we have read this week, uh, that he would continue to uh, implant it deeper into our hearts and move it from our mind uh, into our very souls that we might uh, live it out in our, in our lives today. Uh, we pray, Lord, also for any here this morning who are still trying to be right with God through the works of the law, that, Lord, you would transform their hearts this day, that they would... Uh, that you would have worked by the Spirit in them to see uh, Christ publicly portrayed through the preaching of the gospel this very morning. And we thank you, Lord, that that is the benefit and the privilege and the honor that we get to see uh, through the eyes of faith every week. And so we want to, to come before you and, and raise up your name and worship it and praise it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Uh, amen.